This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Psalm 51? Uh, <laughs> CJ know what we'd be doing. Uh, Psalm 51 um, is a prayer that David prayed that opens up with, have mercy on me. And in our journey through the Psalms this summer, uh, our prayer is, what is, like, how do we pray? Like, Jesus told us, like, what to pray? Psalms teaches us how to pray. Um, when you walk up against situations, well, this one is very clear, which is, how do you pray when you've blown it? Like, blown it, blown it. Before we do that, you probably would behoove you to put your finger, if you found Psalm 51, congratulations, put your finger there and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Because it would be uh, unhelpful, I think, for us to start in Psalm 51 without knowing what it was that David was praying for mercy about. If you've uh, been around the Bible for any length of time, you know that at one point David was looking down on his roof to the roof down below and saw a woman taking a bath whose name was then Bathsheba. So I say, whose name was Bathsheba? Come on, that was funny in the 80s. It's not, I thought that joke still had legs. Someone write that down. We're not doing that one again. Um, yeah, you're like, Darren, it was funny the first 13 times in the last three pastors I heard say it, but it's not funny anymore. So he looks down, he sees Bathsheba, he commits a terrible crime. He sends her husband into battle to be murdered. One of his mighty men, like he betrayed one of his closest friends, took his wife. He thinks it's going pretty okay now. He hasn't been outed, hasn't been busted. And in walks a prophet named Nathan. And that's where we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The prophet has come in. And by the way, this is a courageous thing that this prophet is doing. He could easily have had his head sliced, clean off his shoulders for coming into a king like this. But the Lord sent Nathan to David, verse one. And when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and he grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food, he drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Verse four, then a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. Some of your versions say compassion. 
And then Nathan said to David, you are that man. Now go back to Psalm 51 with me. Because in the next few days of David's life, he's 100% getting hammered with consequences. He's weeping, he's sobbing, he's fasting. And at one point, it, it says that he went into the house of the Lord to worship. But at some point during this week, he wrote these words. Verse one, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all of my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Verse four, for I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me against you, you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, justified when you judge. That's God's word. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. As we approach your word, we approach it with humility, approach it with an open heart to what you might have to say to us today. Lord, at a time when we're calling on everyone else in the nation to repent, I believe that you here are here with us today, calling on us, calling on me to repent. Lord, there's so much truth and promise in this passage of what to do when we've blown it. And I pray, Lord, that today that we would, that those words would be alive to us. Jesus, I ask for you to be with our brothers and sisters at the churches all over Middle Tennessee that are lifting your name high today. Lord, it's so good to see life across the street at Graceland Church with Nathan. You're doing amazing things there, Lord. Would you just keep your hand on him and the church that you are growing there? Lord, up the street at Gateway, Charlie, so faithful for so many years. The name of Jesus being lifted high there. We are just one of many churches lifting your name today, a chorus of that. And we know that when we lift your name high, that you will draw all men unto you. We don't have to, you do it. And that's what we pray in your name. Amen. Does anybody remember young love? Like, by the way, old love, pretty good. I've married 27 years. The grapes get better. Do you know what I'm saying? Like uh, the vineyard is ripe at, at about 20 year mark. So if you guys are young, just know as good as it is, it suddenly that feels very double entendre. I do, don't, don't go song of Solomon on me. I didn't mean it that way, but I, I'm just saying pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. But at 16, it was pretty awesome. And at 16, I lived in a little town called Superior, Nebraska, uh, in the middle of nowhere, named, by the way, with no sense of irony, you know, just a town of a few hundred people. I heard somebody say once, no, that's not a town, that's a herd. <laughs> Y'all just need to keep going and find the rest of your people. Like, you're, you've, you stopped too soon. So anyway, our herd was camped out there uh, in Superior. But I, uh, in the summer of 87, uh, fell in uh, love with a young girl named Mary Young. And Mary lived in a town called Hebron, Nebraska. Okay, rival football teams. 45 minutes away. You know, this is, and this is bad news, like when a superiorite goes to steal a woman right from the Hebronites. <laughs> uh, this, this is poking the dragon, you know what I'm saying? 
And she was like prime woman. Like it wasn't like I was you know, digging in the bottom of the barrel in Hebron. Like I was hitting the cream of the crop of Hebron. So I was not exactly popular in Hebron. Now this love was forbidden by my mother. And I, uh, at one point, no, Ethan, don't get any ideas. Actually, you can get an idea because I'm gonna tell you how this is gonna work out for you if you get this idea. <laughs> my son is 16. Um, I, uh, I wanted to see Mary a lot. Because back then, when you called, you still had to like talk on a phone with it that was hooked to the wall with a rope, you know, and, and your parents listening in the background. So I, I wanted to see Mary Elm, and so I uh, I did the old. This is the greatest plan ever, right? Which was tell my parents I'm staying the night at Marcus Gonzalez's house, my best buddy Marcus Gonzalez. Marcus Gonzalez told his parents that he was staying the night at my house. Right? What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Turns out a lot. So we get to Hebron, and we are uh, now. But here's the, the the downside of Marcus Gonzalez and this plan is that now I got a third wheel. Do you know what I'm saying? So I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to ditch Marcus. Uh, we're walking around and the football game that night. Football game is over, and these uh, we're walking down the main street of Hebron, Nebraska, and these two giant dudes like like literally the size of CJ, maybe even bigger. In my mind, they were like nine foot tall. That's my memory, <laughs> maybe 10 feet, you know what I mean? But it was like, they uh, jumped out of the car uh, and were displeased that I had a Hebronite woman and uh, wanted to take the Hebronite woman and to uh, smite me good, you know? And so uh, Marcus Gonzalez does, uh, his nickname was Speedy Gonzalez. Now that was his nickname for himself. So don't cancel me. But he, um, and by the way, I spoke more Spanish than he did. So you know, he, uh, and if you're watching Marcus, I love you. Um, Marcus Gonzalez picks up uh, a rock, right? David and Goliath moment unfolding in, in Hebron, Nebraska. L literally throws the rock. He's got, I mean, it's sailing right towards the dude's head and hits him instead right in the sternum, bounces off. At which point the dude looks to the ground and looks up and Marcus then earned his name. <laughs> he gone. Uh, so meanwhile, I got, I got the love of my life, Mary Yum, and I'm like, run, Mary, run, run. And, and I did, um, I, I, so I'm literally, I'm in, I'm, and by the way, we're like, we're, I was a white trash kid. We fought a lot. It's just what we did. Um, what else are you gonna do? So we, uh, I, I'm literally, I'm gonna deck this guy I had this whole plan in my head. I'd already watched The Karate Kid. Like, I knew exactly how this was going to go. You know what I mean? And I threw the punch, and it hit him right on the shoulder. <laughs> this is a true story. <laughs> and as you kind of could imagine, it did not hurt him, only it just angered him. And at which point, um, uh, he, he, he smote me good, <laughs> like uh, the Hebronite smote me. He, um, the last thing I remember uh, before being knocked completely out was uh, on the ground, a boot to the head with my mother's voice going, if you go to Hebron, it's against my will. <laughs> yeah, so I wake up and it's kind of weird because I can't see, and I can't see because my left eye has swollen shut. I'm laying on the ground with Mary Elm leaning over me. And by the way, if you've never been beaten up in front of your girlfriend, 
There's hardly anything more emasculating than that. Like it was a humiliating experience. So I'm half a while ago, we still don't know where Marcus is. And all I know is I've now got to drive back to my home because I I mean, felt like I might need to go to the hospital. I wasn't really sure. Again, I was a white trash kid. We just walk it off. That's basically what ended up happening later that night. But uh, just walk it off, son. But uh, So I'm going home. And the whole drive, that 45-minute drive home, I'm praying, God, have mercy on me. <laughs> Please, God. I got to go face my parents. They're going to be so mad. And as I was driving, what I look back in life now and realize and know is I was not praying God have mercy because I've broken my mother's law. Uh, I'm sorry, because I've broken my mother's heart. I'm praying because I've broken my mother's law. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a difference. I, I was 16. I was dumber than a bag full of hammers. I just, all I want to do is not get in trouble. It didn't occur to me that it might break her heart that I lied through my teeth to her face. There's a difference, there's, there's a repentance that is about, I'm sorry that I broke your heart, mom. And there is a sorry that I'm sorry uh, that I broke your law. One is about the consequences. One is about love. And what Psalm 51 lays out perfectly for us is the difference between those. You see, when it comes to blowing it, you're going to blow it. Some of you are mid-blow. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you've already, you are in the blow right now of the blow it, and you're like, I don't know when I'm gonna land or how this is all gonna shake out. Some of you are past blow. Some of you are young enough that you think, well, I'm never, I would never be that dumb. But how do you pray when you've blown it? You see, the gospel, to use a fairly uh, terrible metaphor, um, I mean, I don't know, maybe you'll appreciate this, Coach Jamie, baseball coach, <laughs> Jack. Like, the, the, the grand slam of repentance, it actually unfolds in this chapter, right? Because sometimes you hit a single, right? And the single first base on this thing is, God, please have mercy on me. Like that's, you've hit it, you've got the first base, but you are not home, right? You're not there yet. The, 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 so you know, have mercy on me is one of the prayers. It's, it's literally like the single of repentance. Hitting a double, you get the second base, is cleanse me. Like, I, I'm sorry, have mercy on me, but man, cleanse me because I've, I, have, I feel gross. Like the, uh, the guilt, the shame underneath it, cleanse me of that. But that's only second base on this thing. That is a double. Third, when you hit a triple, is Lord, you're, you've, you've cleansed me, right? You, you've had mercy on me, and now restore me. Bring, bring me back into a restoration with you. But the home run, first, second, third base, are not possible. You don't score any points unless you get home, and home is the cross, home is the gospel. that's the way this chapter is broken down. Heads up, we figured out first service that we're not gonna get through this chapter, right? So just so you know, I'm aware of the time. I'm as hungry as you are. I've said this before, if you get a skinny pastor, you need to be worried. He's not thinking about lunch. 
I've been thinking about lunch since this morning. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I woke from breakfast thinking, man, I wonder what I'm having for lunch today. Oh, it's a connect lunch. It's going to be good, right? I'm thinking about that too, just so you know. I'm fully aware of that. But we're not going to rush. We're not going to rush through this. So the next time I'm here, we're going to finish this out. But I want to start with the first base of this, right? Which is, Lord, have mercy on me. David had done some terrible, terrible things. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me denotes and implies that there was something that he had done, things that he had done, because he actually says, blot out my transgressions, plural, that there was no way to undo. The toothpaste was out of the tube. And now what is he going to do? And he starts with that very simple prayer. God, I can't undo this. Have mercy on me. And I want to show you like a gospel version of repentance. And I want to start, I want to, give, I want to read something that a, a very famous pastor has said. And you know, because of the last two years, I'm going to say his name and some of your butt cheeks are going to get real tight, okay? You know what I'm saying? Like, like whoa, whoa, is he, you know, just so you know, like I know that this pastor might have done some things, said some things during pandemic that you or I might not have done or agreed with, but he is not a heretic. This man loves Jesus. He believes in the same Jesus that you and I do. So when I quote this, I don't want you to get mad and say, oh, it's that guy. Um, and some of you are like, what are you even talking about? So I'm, I'm really probably talking about 10% of the room. The rest of you, I, I want to tell you what this guy said about repentance that is so brilliant that it's worth me risking making one of you mad, two of you mad, because I want you to hear this. He says, in religion, the purpose of repentance is basically to keep God happy so he will continue to bless you and answer your prayers. This means that religious repentance is A, selfish, B, self-righteous, C, bitter, all the way to the bottom. But in the gospel, the purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ in order to weaken our need to do anything contrary to God's heart. Now, we could just say, in Jesus' name, amen, and go home. I wish that I would have known this 50 years ago. How much time, right, did I spend repenting because I'm afraid of the consequences? I know of one, 1987 Hebrew, Nebraska. But the truth is, is it wasn't gonna be the last one where I would transgress against my mom, like intentionally lie, because I was more worried about breaking her rules than I was about breaking her heart. I wanna put it a little differently. There's a kind of repentance that focuses on the sin that makes you hate yourself. And there's a repentance that focuses on God's love, that makes you hate the sin. One will modify your behavior for a little bit, the other will transform your heart. And a transformed heart changes behavior. David is praying here, not based on the consequences. If you go back to 2 Samuel 12, the consequences that were coming for him were savage and they were well-deserved. And he goes on to say that your justice is right. Your judgment, you got it. He's not arguing his way out of his consequences. He's instead appealing to the unfailing love of God. And that is a different kind of repentance. Repentance. 
David knew everything that God had done for him made him king. He brought him out of this you know, shepherd. He saved him from bears and lions. God was so good to him, and David repaid him by betraying God. And David knew that he broke his heart. David knew he broke his law. Don't get me wrong. He knew that he had broken his law. But this repentance was being born not out of a broken law, but out of a broken heart. God, I have betrayed you. That repentance is gospel-centered repentance. When we sang a little bit ago, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, that prayer is baked into, it's literally straight from scripture. David prayed that prayer. He is praying, Nathan the prophet has dropped the hammer. God, don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I deserve that. Have mercy on me. He said that against you, Lord, and you only have I sinned, which is the second base, the double hit in a repentance, which is not just have mercy on me, God, but cleanse me. I'm disgusting. I'm so dirty. By the time I got home that night in Hebron, I had blood down my face, cuts on my head. I was disgusting. I'd rolled around in the mud, apparently. I don't remember that part, but apparently I'd been in the mud at some point. But that was nothing compared to the dirty that I felt for betraying God and betraying my mom and the, just the guilt and the shame that was all over me for being so stupid. And he says, against you, God, you I have sinned. I've done evil in your sight. Cleanse me, Lord, cleanse me. Now, you read that and you might think, I'm sorry, uh, point of order here. Uh, What about Uriah? Seems like he sinned against Uriah, doesn't it? What about Bathsheba? Doesn't it seem like he sinned against him too? He had sinned against God because who made Uriah? God. Now he was violent and he was unfair and unjust and committed a crime, right, that involved Uriah, but the sin was against the guy who created Uriah to begin with. Like if you walk into my home and you harm my children, okay, yes, that is a sin, that is a crime against my kids, and it is a sin against me because they're my children. His sin against God was he took God's creation, this beautiful little lamb that Nathan said that Bathsheba was, and sinned. When you go back and you read that parable that Nathan said, there are four characters in that parable. There's the rich man, which is David, the poor man, which is Uriah, There's the little lamb, which is Bathsheba. But there is one more character, the traveler. 
he took the lamb, this little lamb, and fed it to the traveler. The traveler, commentators say, is most likely a reference future looking to your flesh, to your sinful desires. See, he uses the word transgression, and that's totally different than sin. Sin is homo legeo, I think I'm saying that right. It's I've missed the target. I took aim, I missed it. There's a sin where I tried and I missed it, but there's another kind of sin, which is a transgression. Transgression is what Darren did in 1987, which is to say, I know I'm supposed to do this, but I'm doing this instead, and I'm doing it because I want to. That's a transgression. And I did that to feed the traveler, so to speak. And there's a whole lot of layers in this. If you go and you look at the original with uh, Abraham and Hagar and Sarah, and he sends Hagar off into the wilderness with no provision. And then later in Galatians 4, I think, in Galatians 4, Paul says, oh, here's what was going on here, that Hagar was a picture of the flesh. And you have to send the flesh Packing, send the flesh traveling, which is, makes so much sense why in Romans 13 it says, make no provision, don't pack a lunch for the flesh. He fed his flesh, Uriah, Uriah and Bathsheba, the, the little lamb he fed to his flesh. He made provision for his flesh by feeding her to his evil desires. He needed Mercy, and what he needed most right now was to be cleansed of the guilt and the shame of allowing this traveler to eat something so pure and something so innocent as Bathsheba. This is important because what this tells us, there is no such thing as a victimless sin. Every sin, every, every transgression, there's the rich man, there's the poor man, there's the lamb, the victim, and there is the flesh. There is no such thing as a victimless sin. That is true whether it's pornography, it is true of violence, it is true of lying. Every sin, every transgression, there is a lamb somewhere that has been eaten by your flesh. That's what we're asking to be cleansed from. Cleansed from that, from what I have done. The sin underneath of the sin is that in my heart is this flesh. He goes on to say in those verses that I was sinful at birth, verse five. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The idea that there are groups of people that are good and groups of people that are bad, born out of an ideology called Marxism. You know that Karl Marx's goal wasn't just to overrule capitalism, it was literally to do away with God. That's why Lenin, you can look at the entire Marxist movement and say that they weren't just trying to get rid of capitalism. It was literally about getting rid of God and his idea, God was the problem. And if we can get rid of God, inside we're all good people. If we can just get rid of the bad ones, the good ones can survive and we can go on as a society. 
right? That's the whole thing, the whole ideology of the proletariat. Every writing that he did was about that. And it was based on one fatal flaw, that the line of good and evil, Doshevsky says, did not go in between groups of people. It goes through the heart of every man. I can't categorize you as the good and me as the bad or me as the bad and you as the good. I have the line of good and evil that goes through my heart and so do you, which means we all need the grace of God. We all need the mercy of God. And the problem when you go down a road like that, when it's a secular godless, and especially in the last couple of years, many of you have begun to hear people like Bill Maher, who's an atheist, and he was making a lot of sense in some things as it related to government overreach and cancel culture. All, it made a lot of sense. You've probably listened to Joe Rogan. He made a lot of sense in a lot of ways. But as secular humanist men, the fatal flaw in their strategy, and if you listen to them for any length of time, eventually they're gonna get to a part of the conversation where they will say, I just thought we'd be further along than this by now. We got all this technology. Shouldn't we be further along? But they have mistaken technology with your personal human spiritual abilities. All technology has done is given a longer range weapon to the same dark human heart that was there since the beginning of time that Jesus came to get rid of, to clean, to restore. So if you're holding on to hope in some sort of secular humanist fashion that humans are getting better, there are thousands of years of human history that say that that is a demonstrably false premise. Science can't prove it. Anthropology can't. It's why we need the gospel so much. It's the one thing that you're hearing right now a lot being screamed is that, don't force your religion on me. And the question, of course, is if human life begins at conception, if there's a child there, here's the thing, that is a religious idea. So is murder. So is stealing. You see, a psychologist, if you sit down with a psychologist, they can't tell you what ought to be. They can only tell you what is. And if they step out of that, they're stepping into the world of religion and not into the world of science. Evolution tells us that it's survival of the fittest. Evolution tells us we can't possibly justify saving, I mean, we're literally, so we're headed to Africa in just a few weeks. We're gonna be feeding thousands of children. There's nowhere in science that justifies that decision. That's a religious decision. And the question, of course, is where are we as a society going to bring in our foundation of laws, of regulations? Like, where will those be from? Because murder, we all say it's wrong. We all know it's wrong. But at the end of the day, I can't prove that in science. Somewhere there's a faith, somewhere that I have to say that I'm believing this. And I know that it makes the skin crawl on Richard Dawkins, the back of his neck but it's true, that it's through Christianity that we would know that those things are sin at all. And why that's important to us right now is there's a whole lot of moving around like what's sin, what's not sin, what's rules, what's not, what's moral, what's not. And it's been a very squiggly moving line in the last few years to the point now where we're as a society that we can't seem to agree on what is right and what is wrong. 
The beautiful thing about the Bible is it has withstood the test of time. What is right and what is wrong. Thou shalt not murder. That was not an inherently, that is not an inherent idea that they were able to get from anywhere else except for in the Bible. William Wilberforce, when he moved in and became a part of what would ultimately overthrow uh, slavery, the gospel, that was all, it was not based on science, it was based on the Bible. The last thing I want to say before we pick this up next time is for those of you that have blown it, which is all of us. He says, cleanse me, O God. He actually says, with, with the hyssop. Cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop evoked something very important and very specific from somebody like David. Because in Exodus chapter 12, God told the people of Israel to put blood on the doorpost. This was the last of the plagues. Uh, That night, the angel of death would pass over. But anyone who had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost would be saved. They were told, use the branch of a hyssop to put the blood on the door. Thousands of years later, Jesus would be breathing what would be his final breaths on a cross. And it said that they were tried to give him this, what would be a medication to try to numb some of the pain, honestly, because they wanted him to live longer to suffer more. But as they lifted up that branch, it was a hyssop branch that they lifted to give him this painkiller. He said, no, I won't take it. He wasn't going to allow it because he didn't want to alleviate any suffering at all. And it was after that moment that he then said, it is finished. Te telestai. Into my, your hands I commit my spirit, God. The hyssop. Cleanse me with the hyssop branch. Because Jesus passed on the painkiller. Jesus passed on the hyssop, like numbing his pain, the hyssop branch with his blood would heal your pain. Friends, that's a powerful truth of the gospel. I mean, even embedded in this, what did he, the, the rich man do? He left all of his sheep to kill the one. Jesus left all of his sheep to save the one. That's the gospel. And when you get to thinking, oh, that's not fair, he left these 99 that were doing so good, they're so righteous, and he went to get that one, how fair is that to the 99? Heads up, there are no 99. There is none righteous, no, not one. We are all the one, we are all the lamb that Jesus went to rescue, and he rescued us by being that lamb in our place. So that instead of me feeding people around me to my own sin and flesh, Jesus, the Lamb of God, would take that place being eaten up so that my flesh could be healed. That's the gospel. And as we get to the 
third base and to home plate of the gospel next time we're together, I want you to percolate on that a little bit. That we all need this mercy. We all need this cleansing. And we all need restored. And the only way any of us are gonna get there is because Jesus hit the grand slam and he hit all four and drove it home so now we could go home. Stand to your feet. I wanna pray for you. Heavenly Father, would you make that alive in us today? Lord, I just feel especially right now that in a room this size, statistically speaking, 30% of the females in this room, 30% maybe more of the men in this room have been victims of, have been participants in abortion in your lifetime. Lord, your mercy is so good and so big, you can save and cleanse David, you can cleanse all of us. Lord, would you just, uh, literally a special dis, like dispensation, a special just anointing this morning on just that kind of forgiveness and grace that there is no shame. You've washed it all away. Just like you said, in, I've, David, I've already blotted out your transgressions. You've blotted out our transgressions. And Lord, across the room, whether it's, sexual sin, whether it's eating sin, whatever the sin is that we are struggling with, the transgressions that we are, just I'm doing it anyway, Lord, would you break that cycle in our life by breaking our heart for what breaks yours? No more repenting to get out of the consequences. Lord, allow the gospel, how good you have been to us, to drive us, to, to, to transform us, transform me, to be healed of that sin. By your stripes, we were healed. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen, amen.